Section 48 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. At the Sign of the World's End On Professors and Professors Professor Fillmore filled the central page of this paper with a review of my very small collection of verses, and I hope that the display of it will be taken as a tribute to his prose and not to my poetry. He is the spirit of criticism I do not feel competent to criticize except for excess of generosity. But in the course of it he expressed his confidence that his straws would not return in the shape of brickbats from the sign of the world's end. Alas, I know well that his straws would be weightier than my brickbats. But though I am not likely to fulfill the apologue, I hope he will not mind if in some sense I reverse it. For even as I read it, I reflected that my work is indeed like straws and his in comparison like bricks. I believe that some of my straws show how the great wind is blowing, though others might compare them to the straws that certain psychological types are said to stick in their hair. Among the Babylonians, I believe, an essay could be not only metaphorically a brickbat, but literally a brick. Mr. J. C. Squire has inspired an architecture club with the object of uniting architects and critics, clearly that they should be united in the Babylonian manner. Mr. Squire might publish a wall and one or two turrets on the subject, and the volume of the Mercury might be a temple of Hermes. But the only sort of work that really would be Babylonian, in its massiveness and endurance, having even in paper some of the dignity of stone, is critical work like that of Professor Fillmore's Introduction to Philostratus. Professor Fillmore is far too learned a man to despise my ignorance. Still more emphatically, is he far too learned to despise my levity? The worst is the corruption of the best. I beg to announce that I know just enough Latin to put this in the original if I choose, and is dead learning, like that of the Prussian professor, is of all things the most despicable. So I do seriously think that living learning, like that of Professor Fillmore, learning that is full of humor and of decision, is of all human things the most glorious. I know it will only amuse him if I confess to feeling somewhat dazed by the detailed metrical schemes of classical antiquity, in which I appear to move with unconscious and almost unearthly dexterity, as in some forgotten but elaborate dance performed by a somnambulist. When I learn from him how I have written poetry, I feel a little like Monsieur Jourdain when he discovered that he had always talked prose. In the coarse sense of the conscious mind and of common cerebration, I confess that I do not know what a galliambic of the catalyst is, but evidently, whatever it is, I can do it all right. I did once know what elegiacs are, at least I thought I did, but the news that I can write them rather shakes my credulity on the point. I am haunted by profane memories of a comic song of my youth, which described in a torrent of polysyllables the sensations of a gentleman suffering from a number of internal maladies, 
of the names and localities of which he was only confusedly aware. It is still further confused in my own memory, especially in the matter of the spelling, but I think two of the lines ran, I got the Oam Persoatic, and I don't know where I am. I've got the Oam Persoatic in my parallelogram. And there was obviously no inconsistency between this diagnosis and the further confession that I've got the Oam Persoatic, and I don't know where it is. Now, any discussion about psychoanalysis can bring tears to my eyes by recalling that lost lyric of my boyhood but I had supposed my own lyrics to be simpler in form, as they are simple enough in sentiment, and it is almost with a kind of awe that I realize their subconscious complexity. I've got the gall iambics, and I find it rather odd. I've got the gall iambics in my anapestopod. It's worse than the pianic, which is going pretty far. I've got the gall iambics, and I don't know what they are. Only there is one rather important difference between the gal iambic of Professor Fillmore and the amperozoatic of Professor Freud. The latter, I think, wants to call the amperozoatic the Oedipus complex or some terrible substitute of the sort. But that is not the difference I have in mind. The difference is that I really do know that the gal iambic exists because Professor Fillmore says so, whereas I do not in the least know or even think that the Oedipus Oumperzoatic exists because Professor Freud says so. And that difference involves the whole meaning of that profound and much misunderstood thing which is called authority. To begin with, there is a difference in the nature of the studies. For one is a knowledge of things which do, at any rate, exist to be known. And the other is a conjecture about things that may not exist at all. I may not know what the gall iambics of Catullus were, but I know who Catullus was, and I know that Professor Fillmore knows more about him than I do. But I do not know that Professor Freud knows the secret part of my own mind better than I do. I know that there is a pre-Christian civilization in a very different sense from that in which I know even that there is a subconscious mind. I certainly do not believe there is an Oedipus complex as I believe there was an Oedipus trilogy. One reason is that the latter sort of fact has stood so long in the world that thousands of other things have indirectly confirmed it and been found consistent with it. Hundreds of Fillmores have been at work on it. Hundreds of men who were both scholarly and sincere have found it to be a fact, or they would certainly have denounced it as a fraud. But I know that psychoanalysis owes even the appearance of truth not to being old, but to being new. It is run after because it is young enough to be a fashion, like any young fashionable lady. That is, because it is not old enough to be either a fact or a fraud. I may see any number of fashionable young ladies running after the fashion, and the same much older knowledge tells me that both will grow old. But Professor Fillmore deals with old things that have refused to grow old. Perhaps it would be truer to say that they have already, in a definite and double sense, grown old for good. In a sense far less silly than the scientific one, he does really deal with the survival of the fittest. All that the scientists do is to prophesy at random that the O. Ampersoatic will certainly survive. Anyhow, we shall not survive to see whether the holy O. Ampersoatic really survives or not. 
Now, anybody who knows anything of the real history of these theories knows that all history is a rubbish heap of such theories abandoned. The instances on which popular science and popular history insist are not really examples, but exceptions. For an example that is an exception is not an example at all. Cases like the circulation of the blood and the revolution of the earth are things that themselves circulate and revolve in the controversy, like a stage army. They cannot be selected as proofs of the success and survival of hypotheses. They are selected as the only hypotheses that have succeeded and survived. Just as Galileo is mentioned with monotonous regularity, because he is really the only example of the church having persecuted an astronomer, so his theory is always mentioned because it is almost the only theory that has been universally accepted as a fixed and final part of astronomy. And even now we do not know what the successors of Einstein will do with the dogmas of Galileo. Of the greater number of scientific theories, and even the most plausible, we have seen the instability even in our own time. Darwin's survival of the fittest will not survive. The conservation of energy has not been conserved. Some hold that the electron has electrocuted the atom. And as for the vast mass of minor speculations about physiology and psychology, there must be a wilderness of waste paper for anyone who is acquainted with the controversies of the past. For anyone so instructed, therefore, it will appear impossible for any professor to spring up suddenly as an authority on the prospects of such things. It means being an authority on the day after tomorrow and a professor of the middle of next week. The disciples who disputed about who should sit on thrones in heaven really had a great deal more to go on than the academic person claiming to occupy that aerial chair. Yet the modern world practically only uses the word authority in connection with the author of a new hypothesis. The author is an authority on his own hypothesis, on what his own hypothesis is. But there his authority really ceases. It is far less than the authority of one who studies not a new thing in the light of hypothesis, but an old thing in the light of history. And if this be true of any science, it is especially true of psychology. For the very meaning of the word confesses that it is searching an unfathomable thing. Superficially, there may be a similarity between Professor Fillmore when he tells me I write galliambic without knowing it and Professor Freud when he tells me that I have a complex without knowing it. But though the former is something that I do not know, it is something that I could know. The latter is really something that nobody could possibly know. I could find out for certain what a gall iambic is, and count my own metrical scansion by this test. I do not know how my own words run, in a way in which I can never know where my own thoughts come from. In other words, the old learning is at least potentially popular, while the new is in its nature narrowed by an oligarchy of mystagogues. End of section 48